Welcome to Malicious Life in collaboration with Cyberis. I'm Ryan Levy. A quick note before we get started. The episode you're about to hear references the development of China's censored internet in the 90s and early 2000s. We covered that subject in episode 91, The Great Firewall of China, Part 1. You don't need to have listened to that episode to follow the story you're about to hear, as the references are not critical. Rather, you can think of this like a movie sequel. You'll follow along even if you haven't seen the first, but you might get more out of it if you have. So if you didn't back when we released it, you might want to pause here and listen to that episode. What is cyber war? It's such a trendy term these days that it's hard to tell. On the news, you'll hear that the US is in a cyber war with Russia, or with China, or with Iran. Russia is in a cyber war with the US, and Ukraine, and half the continent of Europe. And there's China, and Israel, and who cares? Seriously, if Russia hacks into the US Department of Things That Don't Concern Me, or into some politician's emails, does it even matter? It doesn't seem like war. Remember real war? You could get shot in a real war. Cyber wars seem kind of sucky in comparison. I was thinking about this recently, actually, after a discussion I had with Bill Hagestad. Yes, good day. My name's Bill Hagestad, a retired lieutenant colonel, U.S. Marine Corps. Uh, served uh, almost three decades uh, serving our country, a couple of tours in Iraq. Bill has a different kind of view on what cyber war is all about. To get the full picture, you have to understand where he's coming from. How would you describe your relationship with the Chinese government? Because I have trouble doing so. <laughs> yes, I make, uh, I'm very transparent about it. I am actually a visiting scholar at the People's Liberation Army's number one think tank out of Jiangsu province in the People's Republic of China, um, known as the NOFAR Institute. The number one think tank for the PLA, a place no Westerner should be allowed within a thousand yards of. And I, I mean no offense when I ask, what did the Chinese gain by keeping you around, by flying you over and whatnot? Well, what the, the Chinese gain is, is, is more historical than it is uh, anything preescient. Uh, since I am what is called considered a Lao Wei or an old China hand, uh, since I visited China in 1981, many, uh, 83, many of the Chinese military and civilians that I interact with were not even born. China in the early 80s was vastly different than it is today. The Mao era had ended, and under the leadership of Deng Xiaoping, the country was beginning to lighten up. This was before Tiananmen Square, a kind of sweet spot between the old authoritarian regime and the current one. Going back to 1983, I actually had to apply to headquarters Marine Corps to go visit. I said, hey, this would be a great opportunity. Why not uh, take advantage of an educational exchange? And uh, I remember this gunnery sergeant from headquarters Marine Corps uh, calls me up and he's like, Hagestad, what are you doing? 
why would you want to go to the People's Republic of China? You know they're communists, and we fought them during the Korean War. What are you What are you doing? Are you Are you turning communist on me? And I said, No, Gunny. I think it's important that we study the culture, history, military capabilities of our adversaries. For one day, we may face them on the battlefield. Bill lived in China as a soldier and a student. In the process, he developed relationships with people who later rose in the ranks of China's military. So they look at me as someone who is historically more ensconced in their culture, language, history, uh, even economy at, at a very low level than they are. And they find it curious because they want to know what it was like in China before the foreigners came and before they became this economic power. Nowadays, Bill operates as a kind of unofficial attache, making the trip every year or so. Upon arriving, uh, generally in the evening, about uh, 10 p.m. or so, I'll be met by my handlers. And uh, they know that I like Starbucks coffee, so part of that relationship is they want me to feel comfortable, so they'll bring a beverage, uh, which is the last thing you want to do at 10 p.m. is, is drink a caffeinated beverage. But you do so because of the, the genuine uh, friendship. Typically, over the following days of the generally week to two week uh, stay there, uh, we'll have discussions uh, regarding different types of military activities. In all his years bumping shoulders with Chinese military men, one trip to Beijing stands out above all the rest. In 2015, Bill attended one of the most important events that year, a conference for the One Belt, One Road initiative, China's plan to create a modern Silk Road throughout the Eastern Hemisphere. One of the most significant government projects of the 21st century, probably one of the most significant since Egypt built three big triangles in a desert. There were no other Westerners there. You can imagine these Chinese military in uniform looking at me with my short hair. In this uh, tiered room, which was supposed to be an economic military exchange uh, to really roll out the one belt, one road, certainly not for my benefit. I think I was just more window dressing there from a foreign perspective. They were, uh, the Chinese military across the way, male, female of all ranks from You know, there was mostly field grade from major to, you know, general on the other side. In a sea of unfamiliar faces, Bill made his way to his assigned seat. It was very daunting. And I recall reading Chinese. I looked down at the name tags because they're in Chinese. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. His handlers had set up a present for him. Seated to one side was a short man with short hair, soft features, but a stern look. On his other side, a somewhat older-looking fellow with a round face, short, wavy black hair, and a bit more smiley. The two men are essentially unheard of in the West, but to Bill, they were nothing short of celebrities. Even now as I try and describe it, it is really almost surreal to sit down between Gen- General Chiao Liang, a three-star general in the People's Liberation Army Air Force, and Wang Xiao Sui, uh, who had been a senior colonel that had contributed as a co-author of Unrestricted Warfare, or War Without Limits. Xiao 
Chao Liang and Wan Xiangsui shaped the way that Bill Hagestad, as well as many in the PLA, conceived of the role of cyber in modern warfare. And it dates back to a time when hacking was hardly a known concept in military circles. Back in March 1996, the PLA sent 150,000 men to the Fujian province of southern China for a weeks-long series of military exercises. The reason for such a major military gathering was not explicitly stated, though it was universally understood. Fujian is as close as the Chinese mainland gets to the country of Taiwan. Taiwan was about to hold an election for president. The leading candidate, Li Tang-Wi, had just made a speech at Cornell University in New York, which promoted his country's independence from China. So China, which views Taiwan not as its own country, but as a renegade province, did that thing your big brother does where he makes like he's punching you, but stops just before his fist hits your face. Chinese ships exercised with live fire and even ballistic missiles coming within just a few dozen miles of Taiwan's coast and two major ports. Chan Liang and Wang Xiangsui were among the 150,000 men involved in those exercises. They met and together realized just how strange the whole scenario was. Chao recalled, quote, At the time, the situation was becoming daily more tense on the southeast coast. Both sides of the straits were all set for showdown, and even the task force of the two American aircraft carriers rushed a long way to add to the trouble. At that time, the storm was brewing in the mountains, and the military situation was pressing so that people were suddenly moved to, quote, think up strategies when facing such a situation, end quote. What did it mean to have 150,000 soldiers, ships with live fire, American planes flying overhead, and 400 Taiwanese troops at the ready, and yet nobody was actually killing each other? It wasn't exactly a war, but it was really close to it. Chao and Wang decided together that a different kind of war was emerging before their eyes. A characteristically modern kind of war, which didn't accord with the old rules everyone had gotten used to for centuries. They gave their concept a name, Unrestricted Warfare, and began to describe it in what would become one of the most significant, yet little-known, military strategy books of recent history. It was published through the PLA in 1991, receiving acclaim within Chinese military circles. Soon after, the United States Naval Academy got hold of it and translated the work into English. They published an English version under the name, quote, Unrestricted Warfare, China's Master Plan to Destroy America, end quote. On the cover, an image of the second tower exploding on 9-11.
that, of course, was just a ploy to sell more books. I read Unrestricted Warfare. It's not scary or evil. It portrays America less as an enemy than as kind of spoiled rich kids. It does describe how a smaller country like China might defeat America in war, but only really in a theoretical sense. Aside from the sensationalism, there's another reason for that book cover. From page 144, quote, Whether it be an intrusion of hackers, a major explosion at the World Trade Center, or a bombing attack by Bin Laden, all of these greatly exceed the frequency bandwidth understood by the American military. End quote. Chiao and Wang, as part of their concept of new warfare, predicted 9-11 two years before it came true. And 9-11 wasn't the only thing Chow and Wang correctly predicted. They were also early in conceiving of cyberspace as a medium for warfare. Hacking was not yet a mainstream phenomena in the 90s. In places like China especially, where the internet was only a few years old, people were only just getting used to opening emails. But Chow and Wang wondered whether in modern warfare, computer experts might be used like soldiers. Quote, Who is most likely to become the leading protagonist on the terra incognita of the next war? The first challenger to have appeared, and the most famous, is the computer hacker. This chap, who generally has not received any military training or been engaged in any military profession, can easily impair the security of an army or a nation in a major way by simply relying on his personal technical expertise. End quote. If a hacker could be used to significantly impair an army or a nation, would they be even more effective than a soldier with a gun? And if they were more effective than soldiers with guns, what would warfare look like in the future? Nations would battle over networks, bombarding one another, yet without a single human casualty. Wars in cyberspace. Weirdo science fiction stuff. Quote, Computer logic bombs, network viruses, or media weapons are all focused on paralyzing and undermining, not personal casualties. They will bring about forms of war or revolutions in military affairs, which we cannot imagine or predict today. They represent a change with the most profound implications in the history of human warfare to date. End quote. In the decades following unrestricted warfare, China took this prediction and ran with it. They began to carve out military cyber capabilities, putting soldiers in chairs at computer monitors, all under strict secrecy. It's interesting that in many of my trips to the People's Republic of China, it is expressly forbidden to discuss the term cyber. The Chinese were very reticent uh, in the early days of this war uh, to admit that they had a cyber warfare command equivalent to the non-componentized version that the U.S. announced in 2009. From 2010 on, 
Uh, the Chinese continued to deny that they had any sort of uh, offensive or defensive cyber warfare capability. Over time, China developed a uniquely Chinese kind of cyber war machine, enlisting huge numbers of military personnel and perhaps most notorious of all, weaponizing their national corporations in the fight. If we want to understand what cyber war really is, China has a model. It was seeded by Chao Liang and one Xiang Sui, and the image of a future where hackers could be used like soldiers. In the past two decades, it has blossomed, causing some of the most significant international incidents of the modern era, hacks that have crippled Western institutions and reshuffled international order. So with Chao and Wang as our guides, These episodes will cover two stories of cyber war in the Chinese model. Let's get started now with the first, a textbook case study in how to combine political, economic and cyber weapons to destroy Western power. If you're a defender fighting to protect your organization from cyber attackers, you must be successful ending attacks every single time. They only need to be successful once. Cyber Reason reverses the attacker's advantage. Our future-ready attack platform gives defenders the wisdom to uncover, understand, and piece together multiple threats. And the precision focus to end cyber attacks instantly. Cyber Reason. End cyber attacks from endpoints to everywhere. It's difficult to describe just how big Nortel Networks was at the peak. It's kind of like trying to explain floppy disks to someone under the age of 30. Floppy disk? Is that like the thing where you bring a girl back to your place, but you had too much to drink, so you can't, you As know... As I was saying, at the turn of the century, during its peak, Nortel was massive. Their revenue exceeded 10 billion a year and market cap exceeding 250. They constituted over a third of Canada's entire stock index. In other words, they were half as big as all other publicly traded Canadian companies combined. And here's another fun fact. At one point, according to the Globe and Mail, over 70% of all internet traffic worldwide ran through Nortel fiber optics. 70%. Basically, every time you did something on the internet in 2002, it ran on Nortel wires. And if those numbers don't quite convince you, it's probably because you've never been to Carlin campus. Carlin, Nortel's headquarters on the banks of the Ottawa River, is a kingdom a sprawling, magnificent manifestation of the company's success. In its appearance, the campus closely resembles the U.S. Capitol grounds. A long, rectangular lawn is flanked by buildings lined up on either side and the central building at its head, featuring a triangular roof that provides a focal point for the eye. The buildings, on their own, comprise over 2 million square feet. And if you count the parking lots, it's a lot more than that. 
you can see in this place the prototype of future mega HQs to come. Googleplex, Apple Park, those campuses that are almost cities in and of themselves. And as those companies began attracting talent from around the world to San Francisco during the boom of the Silicon Valley, 90,000 employees choose to ignore the call, hunkering down in Chile, Ottawa, where some of the best, most innovative development was happening. A longtime Nortel veteran reminisced how, quote, you are just surrounded by the most interesting and intelligent people that you could find anywhere in the world. Nobody would ever tell me I couldn't do something. End quote. Nortel's success had a knock-on effect in the city of Ottawa, promoting a tech culture which in its heyday rivaled California as the place to be. A Bloomberg article painted a picture, quote, Back then, Ottawa, not traditionally or since known for its glamour, seemed full of sports cars, corporate jets, and even society scandals featuring tech CEOs. In 1999, the co-founder of Nortel's precursor company threw a gala at which his wife showed up in a $1 million leather bodysuit with an anatomically correct gold breastplate and a 15-carat diamond nipple, end quote. The disadvantage to being so successful, having all the glitz and the glamour to yourself, is that it makes you a target. Carling Campus was both a trophy of commercial success and, in a different view, a juicy red 2 million square foot bullseye. While the Canadians were diamond-encrusting their nipples, people halfway around the world were plotting how to get those diamond nipples for themselves. The second downside to success is that it breeds complacency. In modern unrestricted warfare, its Western powers were at a comparative disadvantage against newer, more unfamiliar kinds of threats. For instance, the United States might have the best army, but what's an army is good for if you're not facing an army? If you're facing hackers or terrorists, an enemy who follows a different set of rules. Quote, In an age when an old order is about to be removed, those in the lead are frequently those who are the first to destroy the rules or those who are the earliest to adapt to this situation. For bin Laden, who hides under the hills of Islamic fundamentalism, George Soros, who conceals himself within the forests of free economics, and the computer hackers who hide themselves in the green curtains of networks, no boundaries exist. End quote. Like the U.S. Army, Nortel Networks was big, strong, and therefore well-suited to competing against other companies like them. But were they prepared for a different kind of enemy? One who didn't follow the same rulebook, for whom no boundaries existed? No, they were not. Were you to pick one person more than anyone else on the planet who stood to gain from seeing Nortel fail, 
It might have been a man with a wrinkled face, short black hair, with a friendly face that, by some accounts, belies his true nature. A man whose short stature takes nothing away from his massive worldwide influence today. This man is someone you've heard about if you're an avid listener of our show. Huawei's controversial, jovial CEO, Ren Zhengfei. This is a, a, a historical uh, case study uh, for students of military and economic uh, interest. Uh, specifically, if one looks back to 1948 and Mao Zedong uh, pushing General Chiang Kai-shek off to the island of uh, nation of Taiwan, uh, during that period, you either supported Mao Zedong as a true believer of China or you did not. Well, in the case of poor Mr. Ren Zhengfei, um, who has served in the People's Liberation Army, he's the CEO and founder of Huawei, um, while he was serving in a, I believe, a uh, cryptological or a, a communications type unit within the PLA, uh, as they went to do his background check for a communist membership, they discovered that his parents had actually supported Chiang Kai-shek. By pure chance, Ren Zhengfei was born on the wrong side of China's internal political wars. The perceived sins of his parents were transferred onto him, whether he liked it or not. Now, in any background situation, regardless of whether you're Chinese or U.S. or whatever country it is, uh, and the Chinese perhaps are a little bit more prescient about this, uh, they're a little bit uh, unforgiving. And they basically said, we are not going to authorize uh, you to continue in this man's PLA because your parents supported the wrong military. We don't know that we can trust you to carry out the uh, duties of the state as a Chinese military officer. Being made an outcast through no fault of his own must have been frustrating for the young Ren. The government was cutting down its army and he left for civilian life. But he never became jaded. Ren Zhengfei, although he was a failed uh, communist member, um, he was still Chinese. And at the end of the day, he knew that he must support the mother uh, country that he grew up in, regardless of the foibles of his parents uh, in 1948-1949 China. He had an idea that could help China, and in doing so, might propel him back into good standing. Certainly heartbroken and uh, you know dismayed over his un- misfortune, uh, he went off and founded Huawei, a telecommunications company. With only 21,000 yuan, the equivalent of just $5,000 and a small amount of investor money, Huawei didn't have much to build with. But Ren's idea didn't require all the trappings of a normal company because they weren't going to actually build anything. They would simply take imported tech from the West reverse-engineer it, then sell it to China. A highly cost-effective approach and useful to the PLA. The very notion that he had been uh, sacked from the military lent itself to uh, his comrades who he left behind needing equipment. He knew that there was a need there commercially because they couldn't just go and buy it. They would have to essentially uh, steal it. And most militaries don't have the budget to go and purchase or effectively steal things as they would like to. So he created a market for himself with the Chinese military, Mr. Ren Jingfei did. 
Huawei's first big success was a telephone switch, but a real breakthrough came a year later when the company signed a contract to build the first national telecommunications network for the PLA. Ren personally met with the general secretary of the CCP, who noted just how important the project was to them. Quote, Switching equipment technology was related to national security and that a nation that did not have its own switching equipment was like one that lacked its own military. End quote. For Ren Zhengfei, Huawei was both a business venture and a political tool. From its inception and then years later when the Chinese government took aim at Nortel Networks. How Nortel entered the sights of the Chinese government is in some ways obvious and in other ways not. For one thing, there was the matter of intellectual property. China was only just starting to build up their network infrastructure as Nortel hit its peak, so it's only natural that they took an interest in Nortel's wares. They saw, the Chinese saw the value of the intellectual property, thus, you know, originating in China with the, the expansion of the, the network there when, when the Chinese needed it. And they said, you know what, we could really use this technology. IP theft would be enough reason for China to target Nortel, but really, that was only the beginning of it. We don't usually conceive of internet infrastructure as a mean of control, but really it is. It is to control the flow of information. Whoever uses Nortel wires to access the internet to communicate across distances becomes reliant on Nortel and in some sense Canada. China's very aware of this kind of influence. It's just like their Belt and Road initiative, where by building the infrastructure for it, they are in effect becoming the arbiters of international trade in the Eastern Hemisphere. So it was perhaps lucky timing that just as Huawei grew big enough to expand outside China's borders, the CCP yet again found political interests in Ren Zhengfei's business ventures. Huawei's competition against Nortel would become a proxy for China's competition with the West over global dominance in tech. In other words, while Nortel may not have known it, they were in a battle for control of the internet. They were diamond-encrusting their nipples and their enemies who they didn't even know where their enemies were plotting how to take them down. Hang on, hang on, hang on. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. In the B-Side episode we released two weeks ago, I interviewed Chris Weissapel, one of Loft's founding members. A big part of this conversation was about Loft's merger with At Stake, a cybersecurity company, and the tensions this acquisition created within the Loft group. Following this interview, we asked you over on Twitter whether you think it is possible to combine the hacker's ethos and the business world. 
in the poll, most of you, 60% of the votes, said that no, it's impossible to combine the two worlds. Oryx, the bug bounty mistress, highlighted how difficult it sometimes can be for corporations to understand the hacker ethos. Quote, from what I have seen, no business can even understand that many of us are not traditional folks. We learned in our youth, then on the job. So they are not even capable of hiring the right talent. End quote. Twitter user at Banana was even more decisive, writing, quote, capitalism is inherently unethical, end quote. Although, let's face it, Banana, there are plenty of unethical hackers as well. Nick Bowne from London was a bit more optimistic, writing, quote, there are plenty of opportunities for the two to work together, but generally speaking, techies don't make the best executives. But when they do, that's when the magic can really happen. End quote. And Kishore Bhargava, a self-proclaimed fast fanboy from India, added in the same vein, quote, suits and t-shirts just can't get along. The only hope is when the t-shirts grow up and become suits. Wink emoji. End quote. Kevin Kelly added, quote, Hey Ran, those were two great shows. Thanks, Kevin. All I can say is, yes, it's possible to combine both worlds together, but needs a whole lot of strategizing for the two worlds to work harmoniously. End quote. To which Kishore replied with, it's like you need a man in the middle. <laughs> Good one. Kishore made me laugh. As always, you can find all of our past episodes on our website, malicious.life, and also all the full transcripts. Follow us on Twitter at, at maliciouslife or me at, at ranlevy. That's R-A-N-L-E-V-I. Cyberism's Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Nate Nielsen is our senior producer. Sound design by Benoha Bari. Thanks to Cyberism for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberism.com. Bye bye. CK music, 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 music.